Hi, and welcome back to The Horn, a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. To begin our new season, I'm delighted to have back on the show my colleague and Crisis Group's president, Comfort Aero. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into Africa's place in this new world we find ourselves in and take a look at what the future could look like. Comfort, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I believe it's been two years since we last had you on the horn. Uh, Back then, we discussed how peace building and geopolitics in Africa were changing in a changing world. And of course, since then, also, we've had the war in Ukraine, which appears to be accelerating all these trends. Um, On top of that, we have the global economic havoc, a worsening climate crisis. Still, we have the ongoing pandemic, all of which are hitting the African continent especially hard. I guess I wanted to start first with a broad question um, about how African leaders, African governments, you think should be thinking about how to navigate these these different kinds of global pressures, as well as this geopolitical tussle they now find themselves in. I mean, I think that when you look back and you look at the condition of the international system, where you look at the condition of international relations, the future doesn't look bright. And I think for a number of African leaders, for those of us who study intra-Africa diplomacy or Africa's diplomacy vis-a-vis the rest of the world, we should be very worried. Our institutions are no longer serving or capable of being able to respond effectively to the global peace and security challenges that we are facing. And that should worry the continent of Africa. Because the most important institution, the United Nations itself, has retreated, at least the Secretariat has retreated from the big political role that it ought to be playing or that we want to see it play. And is instead focusing on humanitarian diplomacy, which is important, but in terms of playing a more leading, assertive political role, there's a sense in which the UN has sort of taken a, a retreat. And that, in a sense, should be worrying for Africans or African diplomats and for those of us who look to the the UN to play a significant role. At the same time, however, the one continent that has consistently championed multilateralism has been Africa. And in in that sense, its own institutions, the African Union or its regional bodies, then become sort of significant, important champions. So the question is whether the African Union, ECOWAS, the, the West Africa body, SADC, can step into the increasing political vacuum that has been seceded, the ground that the UN appears to have seceded, whether they are willing to step into that breach and play a more assertive role. Um, I think one of the things that struck us was that a number of people praised Ambassador Kimani, the Kenyan ambassador to the UN, for the speech that he gave at the UN. Have you ever heard similar passionate speech made in the chambers of the Peace and Security Council of the African Union in the name of a conflict on the continent. So that's a real test case. I think another concern, um, Alan, it's not just the world body on peace and security that a number of us have concerns about, but if we all agree that we are entering a very deep period of recession, um, inflation, and where there are question marks about mounting debt crisis, can we rely on those institutions that are mandated to get us out of this crisis, the World Bank, the IMF, can we rely on them also to help us think through about our own position and our own fraught debt crisis going forward as well? And I think there are real question marks about the capacity of those financial um, institutions to be able to service the, the dilemmas that we face in the future. Those are sobering remarks to start us off um, about this period, I think, of great uncertainty and 
and flux um, and a United Nations and multilateral system failing. And also, of course, a lot of concerns with the African Union itself on the continent. I'm just wondering, within that context, where do you think African leaders would be best to focus on? Is it on creating greater unity among themselves in order to collectively engage the international community to protect themselves from these global shocks? Um, Is it on finding reforms in the global system so they can perhaps uh, manage this great power competition more easily? Or where do you think they should be focusing on strategically if you were advising leaders on the continent right now? Um, well, get your own house in order. <laughs> I think that's the most crucial um, issue. We we do have pending crises, protracted crises on the continent. Let's not forget that the home of the Africa Union, Addis Ababa, is where we see the most deadly humanitarian crisis, political crisis um, unfolding now. So we we need to we need a solution to the return to fighting in Ethiopia, and and there's no better player on the continent than the Africa Union to begin to cajole and define and shape what the return to a truce could look like and then what serious talks and dialogues could could look like. I mean, the AU should be in the position to lead to prevent more carnage. The Africa Union says that it's a champion for conflict prevention, for, for peacemaking, for diplomacy, for negotiating differences around the table. So that's got to be the very first order priority and also making sure that these conflicts do not become proxies to other people's interests as well. So we shouldn't sort of hide behind certain realities. We know that Ethiopia, we know that Sudan, we know that the Horn itself is of interest to a number of sort of foreign powers and making sure that we can shield these crises from from those external interests become crucial. So getting our own house in order I think it's got to be the very first thing that we can do in the midst of this geopolitical upheaval and competition. The other crisis is is the Sahel, which is now going into its eighth, nine year. We've seen France having to unceremonially retreat from the Sahel, recognising that, you know, seven, eight years of hyper-militarisation, of security first, of militarisation first and diplomacy sort of last hasn't worked. And unfortunately, you know, Russia stoking tensions between France and and Mali and others in in the region as well. So I really do want to emphasise that getting intra-Africa diplomacy and making sure that that our leaders step up, you know, the passion in which they've spoken and rejected the aggression or, you know, have called for certain action to protect the continent against the fallout from Ukraine. We want to hear that assertiveness, that clarity, that consensus being bestowed on a number of the crises that we're facing um, on the continent. You know, African leaders were invited to the G7. You know, Macky Sall took the decision to visit Moscow. Eventually, Zelensky, after a number of people spoke to him privately, said, come and speak to the continent. The continent was also involved in the G20. And I think that the, the ask by African leaders has been very consistent around fighting food insecurity around dealing with climate change, around dealing with the commodity shocks, around that as well. And then just one more thing that I I would add to where Africa should put its eyes in the context of everything that's happening is that the continent itself, as you know, will be the one leading the conversation and leading international diplomacy and collaboration and cooperation for this year's COP conference in Cairo, COP27, do we have a clear Africa 
agenda? Have we got clarity in terms of what are the key issues that are going to be put on the table, climate financing in the midst of climate adaptation? So I think getting clarity on that as we go into the Cairo conference is where I would also expect to see the African leaders providing leadership in terms of what they want to see and how they're going to own that process and guide the conversation in Cairo as well. Do you sympathize with the, what I'd say, maybe natural desire of many African elites for non-alignment, if you will, uh, within this current this current conflict, especially between basically Russia on one side and Europe and the West on the other? I mean, yes, I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to it because, I mean, I would phrase it differently. One of the consistent messages that has come out from leaders across the continent, which has irritated some of the Western leaders, has been that Africa does not want to, to be instructed to choose between the US and Russia. It's a very pragmatic response as well. They'd rather seek to get what they can from either side. So they, they reject this consistent effort by a number of European countries and the US to force them into a camp as well. But at the same time, also, they have their own national interest. Sometimes we, we, work, we work on the assumption that these countries don't have, have interest. I mean, South Africa, for example, on, there's been a, a tremendous pen you know, excised on South Africa's position. The reality is that there are competing views, there are competing narratives within South Africa that are bound by its own history under apartheid um, struggle and those who were were supportive of it as liberators. There's a real tension within the ANC versus the government in terms of where to stand. Let's not forget that South Africa is part of BRICS as well, and and that puts it in a very difficult position in terms of deciding. But even there, Alan, I think we shouldn't miss the consistency of the African voice in saying, we're not calling into question the aggression of Russia versus Ukraine. We are learning on the continent, as leaders say, to live with a competitive dynamic between the US and China as well, and Russia to increasingly assertive return onto the continent. We do not want to get caught up in that competition. It's a competition bound by trade, security, culture, economics, and we have to find a way in which to preserve and protect our own interests. Some of it, yes, is self-interested. Some of it is, yes, a club of autocrats working together. But some of it is also bound by the fact of double standards, hypocrisy, and recognising that, you know, the 30, 40, 50 years, 70 years of Western engagement on the continent has been very uneven, mixed, and hasn't often delivered in favour of the continent as well. How do we get past this pattern which you're describing and that in some ways looks basically like Western leaders often making decisions that then have massive repercussions on the African continent and then coming to Africa basically to lobby leaders and countries to back and support those positions? Surely there's a better way of going about this that would um, make African countries partners in the global system as well, no? Yeah, just on, on, on that point. So we shouldn't assume that it's just the West that is doing this, you know, coming to lobby and to, and to sort of cajole and, and force Africa into, onto one side. China and Russia and Turkey, the Gulf countries, India, I mean, they're not altruistic actors in here. They talk in the name of solidarity and because they're all part of the non-aligned and therefore we act as one. But we should also demystify this notion that somehow the, the global South acts and one voice and will therefore act in solidarity 
China is very much guided by its own national interest. Russia also is guided by its own interest. And, you know, it's not lost on a number of us who are watching very carefully what Lavrov, for example, was trying to seek when he came to the continent recently, making it very clear that the, the narrative is that the West is to blame for the food security crisis as well. So we should be we, we should also be sort of attentive to the games that are played on on the other side and not to assume that there's solidarity fully. Again, I'm very much enamoured by what Ambassador Kimani has been saying recently, and he did another interesting online debate recently, Alan, at the Aspen Institute. I don't know if you remember Jandai Fraser as well, the former US Africa assistant to Africa. And she said one of the things that really be help, helpful for the West to do is to stop lecturing the continent. And then Kamani retorted and said, and also be prepared to accept a lecture back on certain things. And I think there is, I think there's something important about that is that there's a sense in which the, the continent is always expected to listen, you know, without recognising the, the consequences of those. And also to not recognise that really do generally irritate a number of sort of of the African countries, especially those themselves that see themselves as global players or significant regional actors in their own right as well. So here I talk about South Africa, Egypt, Algeria, you know, Nigeria, Ethiopia as well, regardless of, of their own sort of economic tremors. These are actors in their own right that the West relies on to either be surrogate allies, to do the bidding for them and to fight some of these crises for them. So they expect to be treated with the same respect. They're expected to be seen as global players who have interests that go beyond their, their regions. You know, they are they play a significant role at the level of the of the United Nations, at both at, in the Secretariat, but also the Security Council. They're called upon time and time again to also support significant international developments as well. So they want to be seen. Also, Alan, I think it's worth re- reflecting on the fact that that this is a continent that itself has been a champion of multilateral organisations for the simple reason is that we have benefited significantly on the continent from the, these multilateral organisations. The UN itself was the organisation that spoke in defence of decolonization and spoke in defence of non-aggression. And so it is important for the continent to preserve and to save the the essence of these organisations because it worked for the it worked for the continent at the birth at their birth of independence as well. There's a ton to unpack there. Um, I think that's a remarkable exchange between Jendai Fraser and Martin Kamani that you're mentioning. Uh, it it's somewhat amazing to me that we're in the year 2022 and the discussion is still about how African countries don't like to be lectured. What do you see as the shortest path to integrating Africa into the global governance, uh, the global geopolitical structures more formally, uh, maybe perhaps starting with the uh, United Nations Security Council? Uh, what do you think would be the most practical, shortest path to addressing this in the near term? I mean, w- that debate has been had at nauseum, And the challenge for a continent of 54 countries is which Africa country is going to represent the continent at the Security Council, that debate around the so-called big, big five of the continent, you know, should it be Ethiopia, Algeria, Egypt, Nigeria, or South Africa, and there's, there's no consensus as well. That is not, however, to, to dismiss your important point about 
reforming the 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 global the global governance architecture, reforming the crisis management architecture, the the UN, the international financial systems. They all need some form of serious commitment to reform. But you're also asking the great powers, despite the tensions between them, China and the US as well, they're not about to relinquish their privileged position. And they will be very circumspect about how much reform that they would allow. So despite the competition between them, they jealously guard these positions. But that, but we do need to put this on the table. These, after all, are the post-Cold War architectures that has gotten us to where we are today. And as I said at the opening of our conversation, there is recognition, particularly among the, the band of countries that often come under the label Global South, there is a, there is a recognition that the legitimacy of these institutions is up for the, for debate. You will be familiar, Alan, with Secretary General Antony Guterres's you know common agenda, and now conversations about a sort of a new agenda for peace for the UN. This is the moment, I think, Alan, to answer your question to make sure that the continent is properly represented in those conversations, in the development of an, of this new agenda for peace. Africa and a number of other countries that are not formally represented in the way that you are suggesting in these international architectures have a right to, to assert more forcefully that they should be sitting at the, at the table because a number of the, the crises are at their door. Climate crisis, for example, is really at the door of a number of these countries, the, the country that you've looked at for a long time, for example, South Sudan, Somalia. You know, so it's, it's important that when we talk about collective security mechanisms, that those countries that are impacted by, by those do have you know, proper recognition at, at the table. So amid this period of disruption, um, obviously we've talked quite a bit here about the peril um, of it. But I, I also think what's coming out is that there is perhaps some opportunity here as well amid amid all the dangers for the continent, but perhaps uh, broader as well. I mean, it's hard to argue that the current global uh, architecture has uh, necessarily worked very well for the continent or given it the place that it rightfully should have. Does it feel to you like this is the time to perhaps tackle some of those big reforms uh, or do we still have a ways to go, unfortunately? I mean, look, we're in the midst of a of a war and the attention span, the, the amount of things that, that those who will be crucial to the reforms and to the the reboot and to the resetting are all distracted by the war in Ukraine. So it's a conversation that sadly I think will be parked to the side. But there are other things. I mean, there are in the midst of tragedies, opportunities for sort of remaking what I think you're trying to get at with sort of remaking our, our global order. My concern or a, a concern we should have is how much, so even in the reforms that we're talking about, and the reforms, we shouldn't also assume that the reforms themselves may not reflect the preferred order, the Western order, or what the, the West would, would prefer. We are living as, you know, our, our own board member, Shishanko Menon said, recently on the hold, on hold your fire that we are living in between two world orders the old one unipolar very much led by the us or or the, the post-cold war era sort of in transition to an unknown 
we sh what I would be concerned about as we see a withering of one order is how much of the values that we hold to be very important, how much of those can we retain in whatever the future looks like? And also, I think what we should be concerned about at Crisis Group is that what does what does the future multilateralism look like in the, the, the vortex that we're going to enter as well? And then what kind of political authority will important institutions like the, the UN, for example, the African Union, the EU hold? I think here, here is where I believe that Africa has a chance to play a role. It's very clear when I look at this from a continent's point of view, the continent cannot be nonchalant, cannot disregard multilateralism. This is what we need to be part of, a, of a whatever global order emerges, that we find some consensus around what multilateralism looks like. And then what the speech that you heard from Kamani was in defence of multilateralism. By the way, he was the only person on that day in the, in the days leading up to the invasion that spoke in defence of multilateralism. And this is why I'm emphasising it. And this is why I also emphasise that the AU itself has a chance to define what that is as well. The other values that we really have to hold on to in this unknown world that we're entering into as well is the norms around sovereignty and territorial integrity and political independence. I say this because of our colonial heritage on the continent as well. The smaller or weaker states are constantly having to look off over our shoulders. And it's important that even in this world in between orders, that we that, that the, the continent latches on to those norms and preserves that. This is why what happened in, in February was a wake-up call as well. And so, you know, so I, I, I say that regardless of what the world looks to, the role of the continent in making sure that those values around political independence, around sovereignty, around territorial integrity, that we fight for those, because those are going to be crucial in terms of safeguarding and in terms of peace and security going forward. The number of countries out there who are not interested in protecting and safeguarding multilateralism. And multilateralism is often um, very uncomfortable for, for a number of sort of autocratic leaders. And it's so important regardless of what happens, that we preserve what we can of multilateralism going forward and with it those those vital values that were that were crucial to us in the in the post-colonial era. Okay, a, a final question, Comfort. Um I wanted to bring this back to our core crisis group work on preventing and ending conflicts. Um, a lot of this discussion thus far has been very big blue sky, absolutely fascinating about this world between orders. But in this world between orders, I want to go back to a conversation we had a couple years ago, which is very focused on how to do peace building within that world, how to end conflicts within this context. Obviously, uh, the global order has been even more disrupted since we had that conversation. But what do you think the focus should be on as we're looking at places like Ethiopia, which you mentioned has returned to what is a very devastating conflict um, in northern Ethiopia and other similar contexts that we work on right now? What should be the focus of diplomacy in a time when multilateral institutions don't look very fit for purpose, but, you know, when everything basically appears up for grabs? At the heart of the conversations that I've sit and listened into and but also just reading 
the work that we're doing, the reboot that, that has been pushed for, one is around a restatement, for example, of the value of, but also recognising that the limits of, of peacekeeping and peace building capacities as well. But also, I think, looking very carefully and frankly about where those capacities to do those kind of operations lies and also acknowledging the challenges around about around peacekeeping around mediation and, and looking for other tools and actors the one thing i would emphasize very thing that i said that i wanted to see us invest in was in regional prevention and and really getting the regions to invest in regional prevention and i know that this is something for example that our un colleagues will be pushing very hard hard for There's, there is a strong UN agenda for boosting regional prevention and to encourage the UN to continue to build its strong relationships with regional partners, the AU being the poster child of, of what that partnership could look like between the UN and the and the AU. There is a vibrant conversation taking place, a lot of it emerging as a result of, of President Zelensky in the immediate aftermath of the invasion, calling into question the viability of the UN going forward, especially because one of the permanent five was also the one that broke this important principle of non-aggression as well. And so a challenge has been thrown down to the UN in the future. The Security Council particularly cannot walk blindly into the future without recognising that it needs to inspect itself, inspect its own capacities and ask itself, you know, whether it, it is fulfilling its own mandate in terms of leading and managing international peace and security architecture. I mean, Ukraine aside, we have a number of important crises that still need proper guidance, engagement by the Security Council. The fact that it doesn't have the capacity to absorb all of those raises questions for a number of people going forward. So I think there are opportunities, but there's a number of security implications going forward. And Ukraine aside, Ethiopia, you know, Yemen, Myanmar, the Sahel, and then we've got these two big mega trends, climate change and the pandemic, because we're not out of the pandemic, the consequences that go with it as well. Comfort, thanks for finding time amid all your global travels to, uh, to come back on the show. No, thank you, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. Once again, I'm Alan Bonswell. You can find out more about Crisis Group's work at crisisgroup.org or at Crisis Group. The Horn is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. You can tune in again in two weeks to our next episode.